0: I'm Alicia gonzalez and welcome to Real Talk, a place where healthcare professionals share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. Today's story comes from a physician assistant in California, Joanna Ho, or JoJo for short. One year ago, in early 2020, a series of police altercations that resulted in the deaths of multiple Black Americans sparked a resurgence of anti-racism protests and the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S., bringing our nation into a conversation about racism more intense than anything since Martin Luther King Jr. and others led us through the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In March of 2020, one of those leading stories was about a man named Daniel Prude. And while his story was prominent because of concerns about how he died, asphyxia in the midst of an altercation with the police, at the same time, for those of us working in healthcare, this story raises some other really difficult questions, because just hours before Daniel was in police custody, he was under our care. This is JoJo's story.
1: Back in the beginning of September, I heard on the news the story of Daniel Prude. Uh, For any of you who don't know the story of Daniel Prude, I'll give you some background. Daniel Prude was a 41-year-old black man who was visiting his brother, Joe Prude, in Rochester, New York, in early March. It was upstate New York, so it was a little bit cold. It was snowy. Uh, His brother gave an account to local media saying that Daniel Prude arrived at his house. He was acting a little bit erratic. Um, He launched himself down a flight of stairs. I think it was like 21 steps, and his brother was really concerned that he may have been trying to harm himself or acting erratic. So... He ended up calling EMS to take his brother to the local hospital for a psych evaluation. Um, So Daniel was taken to the hospital. He was in the hospital for a total of three hours. He was evaluated. He was released. Daniel ended up going back into his brother's house. He was calm. They ended up talking late into the night. Daniel started to be erratic and acting Agitated again around 3 a.m. His brother stepped out to get him a cigarette, and Daniel left the house. He ended up running down the street in the direction of the train tracks. His brother was concerned that he might be under the influence of PCP, so he ended up calling the police again, um, the second time in 12 hours. A couple minutes later, Daniel came into contact with the police. He was completely naked. And again, this is March, uh, upstate New York. Snow was falling. The police asked Daniel to, you know, get on the ground, to put his hands behind his back. And Daniel complied. Um, He was cooperative, according to police body cameras. After a couple minutes, Daniel started to become a little bit more agitated. He began to spit. The police put a spit hood on him. When he tried to get up, the police forced him back onto the ground. They applied pressure to his head, his neck, his back. Daniel became unconscious. He ended up losing pulses. Um, EMS arrived. CPR was initiated. Daniel regained pulses, but was never really able to regain brain function. He was in the hospital for about a week. And about a week later, Daniel was taken off life support. Um, His family was able to access... The body cam footage, like, months later, this happened in March. They were only able to see it in September, which I'm sure was really shocking to them. So a few things stood out to me about the story, one of which was that in the hours before Daniel died, he was in an emergency room. I'm sure much like the emergency rooms we work in. He was discharged less than 12 hours before he died. Um, And his family had called asking for help twice Um, you could argue that daniel prue died as a complication of his psychiatric disease um, and that the er had an opportunity to treat that the day before even before he was discharged from the ed the first time um, his brother had called and had advocated that daniel be held and treated he was told he couldn't do that and he was released so what does this mean for us Um, We all know, like, psych cases are super complicated. The patients can be really tough. Um, The system is really strained, especially the system for mental health patients. Um, It's pretty broken. But I guess the question this raised for me was, what is our responsibility to these patients? Um, Are we treating them appropriately? Are we listening to them? Um, What's the right thing? Because I know we can't really fix the system overnight, but we can do some things a little bit better. And for me, this led to changing a couple things for my own practice. Um, I think we're all used to hearing that ring down, 5150, agitated in restraints. Um, We all order the same psych panel, we get a basic history, we read the green sheet, we clear our patients, and we move on to our. know, more pertinent cases. Um, We see these patients every day. But now after hearing Daniel's story and feeling a little bit attached to his story, I try to spend at least a little bit more time being invested, finding out his background, listening to the family, calling the family, asking if they have family, um, We can really better target care if we know what we're working with. Second, I try to treat these patients with a little bit more dignity. If they're in restraints, if they're strapped, we try to de-escalate the situation, try to talk to the patient slowly and calmly. I found that this helps to calm them down. I've even seen um, Dr. Smith, who's not on this call, really treat her patients with dignity and respect, and I think that's really inspiring. I think she had a patient that was in four-point restraints, who had a spit hood on, whom you know, EMS and the nurses were laughing about. Um, She was able to just speak calm. And she was able to get her out of restraints and out of the hood without, like, any medications, which was really cool. Um, I think this makes a huge difference, just listening and being calm, treating people like people. So... I want to start treating these patients as people who come from loving families, who are concerned for their health and their well being. I want to see these patients as individuals who deserve quality care. Um, the mental and behavioral health system is truly broken, and I don't have the answers. But we can start by treating our patients with kindness and dignity, communicating with family, and developing a plan. This is a really high-risk population that needs us on our A game, and we need to do our best to ensure their health and safety, especially when they leave us in the ER.
0: Daniel's brother Joe was at a loss for what to do, trying to help his brother, who was clearly having a psychotic break. So he did what so many people do when they have no idea where else to turn. He took him to the emergency room, where he was evaluated, treated, and sent home about three hours later. From there, he ran out into the harsh New York winter cold, the police were called, and the series of events that unfolded next ended with Joe being called back to the hospital, but this time being asked to make the decision to turn off Daniel's life support. Daniel's family brought him to us, to the ER, for help, and soon thereafter, Daniel died. I'm not saying Daniel Prude's death is our fault. That would be pretty unfair. But I am saying that the questions that Jojo asks, I found myself wondering the same things when I first heard this story. What is our responsibility to these behavioral health patients? In emergency medicine, our specialty is identifying and stabilizing life-threatening emergencies. But what about mental health illness? At what point are those life-threatening. And what is our role in that process anyway? Are we treating these patients appropriately? Are we really listening to them? To their families? Like we talked about a few weeks ago in a previous episode, Amy's story, there is not enough access to quality psychiatric care in this country. And I won't lie to you, like with so many other areas of healthcare where we don't have enough resources, this puts the burden of the problem on everybody's favorite dumping ground, the ER. While emergency medicine doctors spend years of their life training to care for medical and surgical emergencies like strokes or heart attacks, big trauma, patients in shock, and all kinds of other stuff, the reality is that a big chunk of our work is filling in the gaps for people that don't know where else to go. We are the destination for really drunk people found on strangers' lawns. The police often bring us psychotic patients patients high on drugs, or even just people with dementia who were wandering around and don't know their way home. People send us their chronically ill family members when they don't know how to care for them anymore. We care for the homeless and the hungry, people desperate for a few hours of comfort in an ER gurney, and one of our famous turkey sandwiches that I swear are somehow identical at nearly every ER in this country. And this high burden of case management and social work and psychiatric cases? It's tough on our ER teams. Why? Because despite how it might seem sometimes, we want to help. It's not fun turning a homeless patient back out to the streets. It's frustrating having a frail elderly patient that does not meet criteria to admit to the hospital, but the family clearly can't take them home, so now they're stuck in the purgatory of the ER until we find a better place to send them for longer-term care. So, you can imagine how we evolved to a place for psychiatric patients where we sort of boil down their care to one simple question Do they meet criteria to be on an actual psychiatric hold or not? And if not, then what? Jojo described a patient in restraints with a spit hood on and that she heard EMS and the nurses laughing about this patient. I won't lie to you, as uncomfortable as it makes me to say this out loud, I've done that. We've all been there. We've all said things about patients who are extremely agitated or psychotic or really high on drugs that we probably would not say about them if we were standing next to their mother or their husband or their kids. JoJo said this best. We can't fix the system overnight, but we can do some things a little bit better. What are those things? Well, for starters, we could listen more. We could make a concerted effort to call people's next of kin when we can, to get the full story, to consider whether this presentation is or is not an emergency for this specific patient. We could advocate with our psychiatric colleagues or county crisis teams or whoever it is that we work with to ultimately disposition these patients. We could advocate better for the ones that may be more borderline in their acuity or who do need a higher level of care and are depending on us not just to send them back to their home where they clearly were not doing well, or else they wouldn't have ended up here with us in the first place. We could work on better screening and treatment protocols, help our ER doctors and our advanced providers do a better job of starting treatment early beyond the initial B52 or other calming medication cocktails that we habitually order for these patients. Solving the behavioral health crisis in our country is not going to be easy. And certainly, the ER is not the primary solution. But how do we do better with what we have? How do we make sure patients like Daniel Prude get a little more attention from us before we click that discharge order? Again, I am not trying to Monday morning quarterback Daniel's care team, not at all. I have discharged many patients dressed like him. But I am hoping we can all learn from this story. Medicine is scary. And sometimes patients have bad outcomes, even when we do everything right. But if there is something, anything, we could do better to prevent that, well, I'm in. Thank you to Jojo Ho for sharing her story with us, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. For more conversation about behavioral health care in the U.S., check out Amy's story, our episode from February 20th. To connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us, head to www.realtalk.transistor.fm or you can follow the link in the show notes for this episode.